Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we speak about what came out of the remarkable Earth Day Summit hosted by President Biden last week. We speak to Fred Krupp, President of the Environmental Defense Fund, and we have music from Vivi. Thanks for being here. So this is effectively the morning after the world changed and pivoted back to climate action. Last week was just, I don't know how much of it you guys watched, but it was just leader after leader, different announcements, the tone. It kind of felt like the next moment that the world pivoted back to this issue after Paris. I mean, I know there's been highs and lows since then, deep long lows and the odd small high, but this was really, everything was back. What do you think? Paul, do you want me to jump in? Well, I think so, seeing as you're kind of moving your head in a little dance movement, like, this is such a great day. I just don't want to stop the flow. So, Christiana, you have the floor. Are you happy? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we've been saying for a while on this podcast that we are on the right direction, right? We are moving definitely in the right direction of decarbonizing the economy. But we have been lamenting and being extremely concerned about speed and scale. That has been the challenge. Well, I would dare say that speed and scale have definitely had an upward movement through the Biden Climate Summit. In fact, I would say that just taking the U.S. announcement of a 50 to 52 percent emission reduction um, by 2030. That, in my book, A, it's two times as much as Obama had been able to commit to. But let's consider it Biden's moonshot. Yeah. Mm. It is a moonshot because it is way beyond anything that was previously considered. It's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get power in the United States to completely walk away from carbon by 2035, significant electrification of transport, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the difference between Biden's moonshot and Kennedy's moonshot. Biden's moonshot has direct benefits for the U.S. It creates millions of jobs. It makes the U.S. economy stronger and more competitive in a decarbonizing global economy. So that is what I think is so exciting. And it begins to show that we actually have to have a moonshot mentality yeah. mm-hmm. about how yeah. we deal with, um, with climate change. That's for the U.S. But then, but then, as though that were not enough, what was the impact for the global economy, for the world? My sense is that this summit truly established the 50% emission reduction that we have been talking about for such a long time, but that has been on the horizon, on the long horizon, and not really committed to right now. It has established the 50% cut as the standard. It has also brought the focus from 2050, or net zero by 2050, to here, to 2030. So a total shift in focus, I would say 2030 is the new 2050. And furthermore, because 2030 is the new 2050 and because the standard that has been set is now 50% emission reduction, 
that actually keeps the 1.5 ceiling um, of temperature increase alive. It does not guarantee it, and we know we still have to close that gap, but it keeps 1.5 alive, which we did not have just a week ago. Yeah. So 1.5 is the new two degrees. Really remarkable tectonic shift in one day. <laughs> Paul? I mean, I'm just, just overwhelmed with the quality of keep 1.5 alive. It's just like the slogan that we're all going to get tattooed, you know, where we've got a bit of spare skin still remaining. Also on this moonshot thing, um, you know, Christiana, I'm really struck by uh, something a friend said to me years ago, which was that NASA's budget for putting somebody on the moon was zero. If you built an enormous rocket and you're going to send some humans to the moon, you don't have to worry about a press release. All the world's cameras will come and watch what you're doing. And I mean, this has changed the world and the world has changed this summit. Um, finance analysts were saying that actually, you know, companies like Vestas and Orsted had gone up in value. I was checking just before this and um, yeah, Orsted's worth more than BP now, one of the kind of Wow. Oil super majors. But in 2017, Austin took the final step and divested their oil and gas business. And look where it's got them. So, yeah, this is incredible. A sea change in politics, but a sea change in business. And, you know, one thing that strikes me just listening to you talk, Christian, I mean, of course, the US NDC is remarkable, right? 20, 50 to 52% by 2030 on 2005 levels. That's impressive in global terms. Beyond that, and we'll get into this, there weren't that many really crunchy, substantive additional commitments from other countries. However, what's interesting, and I think this speaks to the momentum that's created by the leadership that's now being shown by President Biden. If you look at the way the media reported it, they lapped it up. They loved it because it was a strong signal. It was like, we're going this way. He actually got, took the media and took the country, as far as I could see, with him, with the strength of that conviction and with that determination. So even though, and we should get into what the other countries committed to, because there were some other things there, the media still reported it as a massive success. I thought that was a really interesting outcome from the day. Very interesting. True. The other, the other piece that I thought was... Um, Quite interesting is what was said on coal, uh, because we heard from China, not in these words, but if you read between the lines, they committed President Xi Jinping to peaking coal by 2025, yeah. um, and, um, and then coming down after that. So that's a very remarkable new contribution that we had not heard from China, and Korea committed to stop financing coal abroad. And we know, we have discussed this quite a few Which times. Which has been an enormous issue for people who maybe an don't watch this so closely. An enormous issue yeah. because coal financing over the past two, three years has no longer been coming from any private sources because private financial institutions have realized this is a stranded asset, way too risky. So they have really been retiring their financing from coal. But Coal has been staying alive through the public finance of Korea, Japan, and China. And so Korea being the first one to peel off, Japan is apparently now considering also to stop its uh, financing flow. And then China will, I think, actually have to follow. So my conclusion with that, because I'm now into what is the new, coal is the new asbestos. Nobody wants to touch it anymore. <laughs> or the new smoking. Yeah. <laughs> or the new smoking. Yeah, no, I, I had the privilege to speak at a CDP event in South Korea, South Korea I was going to say, uh, uh, this week, uh, because uh, I don't think North Korea is going to be financing anything anyway. But <laughs> South Korea. Um, and and the, the, the point I wanted to make to the audience was that um, 
actually, I think any kind of investment in coal is basically retarding your, your research and development. So, you, you know, you, you often find in a country like Japan or, or South Korea that there's a bit of an interplay between some people who think that they can advantage their industry with fossil fuels, but, but it's actually holding back the whole rest of the economy. It's retarding technological development. And that's the critical point. Mm. And but by the way, if, if, if we're wondering uh, if, if we could possibly run the world on renewables, um, our friends at Carbon Tracker have come up with something absolutely astonishing. Um, they've just come up with a report saying that uh, it, it would be relatively easy to, um, well, I don't know how easy actually, but it would certainly be possible to power the world a hundred times over with renewable energy. So like wow. you could do you could do it a hundred times over. Um and and I'm thinking about because they came up with this fantastic phrase, stranded assets, uh, carbon tracker, but I've been thinking about wasted wind and squandered sun. So we need to get this new lexicon going. Do you know what I mean? About kind of all this great stuff that's happening that we're just not, not taking it to the bank. Not harvesting, that. not harvesting. <laughs> not harvesting. You know, don't forget to harvest. I think also, I mean, and I'd love your view on this, Christiana. There was one, there was one image from the day. So there's a lot of things that struck me. Well, I mean, one is President Biden using the phrase, this is the decisive decade, which I thought was amazing that he came out yes. with that, that clearly. And the other one was, and I found this really touching, actually. Um, my experience of international diplomacy is that there's not actually that much listening all the time to each other. And, you know, people are kind of coming in and out of the room, reading pre-prepared statements. I don't know if you saw this bit. There was a bit in the afternoon where they restarted after a short break. And they invited some vulnerable countries to come and they spoke about the situation that they were facing. It was some islands, some African countries. And John Kerry, Janet Yellen, Anthony Blinken and President Biden were sat there for about 45 minutes just listening to them sitting in the room. What a signal that sends that they were listening to other countries that were facing some of these impacts and hearing that and then responding. I, again, I mean, it's, a, it's an optics thing. Uh, I don't know how it was planned, but I thought it really sent a strong signal. Well, and how ironic, right, that there is more listening when you're actually not physically in the room. Hmm. That is such an irony, right, because we, we, we have been in these rooms so often. And as you say, most people are shuffling their papers, talking to their, you know, whoever is supporting them, sending their messages, whatever, while other heads of state are speaking. And the fact that there was so much more listening to each other is really quite, uh, quite quite remarkable and absolutely the thing to do. However, before we go off, you know, into rapture here. <laughs> oh, come on, give us a few more minutes. Rapture. Oh, gosh. Okay, one more minute and then I have to tell you what was missing. <laughs> no, 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 go on. Go tell, us what, tell us what was missing. Tell us what was missing. We're ready. We've had our happiness and now we have, we have, we've had our optimism and now it's time for our outrage. Outrage. Well, so what's missing is public finance, right? Woefully missing. Mm. I mean, yes, President Biden made uh, made an effort, but uh, the public finance that needs to be there from basically from everyone, from the global north flowing into the global south for adaptation, including loss and damage, um, especially now that everyone is still trying to recover from the second or the third wave of uh, COVID, that was just, you know, the elephant in the room. And that's going to have to be the focus of the G20, of the other international meetings that are happening this year, because that's got to be on the table. If there is not a much more serious effort at public finance, um, then we're in serious trouble. And I underline public finance because it's the political message yeah. that that sends. 
because we know that private finance is moving, right? We know we have a Glasgow alliance for net zero in the financial sector that is now covering $70 trillion of, um, of assets under management that are shifting over from, from wherever they were onto clean technology and clean investments. So private finance is moving much, much more quickly. Public finance has got to be there. So so that's one elephant. I mean, I think the other elephant in the room, and I think you probably, I'd love to know, again, Christiana, because I think you actually did another event focused on this or partly, is it wasn't clear, it's still not clear, whether the US is actually going to be able to pass significant chunks of what it's committed to into legislation rather than regulation. So I think you did an event yesterday or a couple of days ago with our friends John Podesta and Laurence Tubiana for journalists to do a debrief on this. That must have come up. I'm sure people asked John that question. Where are we on that? What does he think? So it's going to have to be a combination, right? There's, uh, there is much that can be done on regulation, but ultimately legislation is also going to be important for some sectors that can only uh, move at the federal level, at the national level, but also let's remember for um, policy continuity. We can't, you know, do this on an ebb and flow of executive orders. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. And and that's what we've had, right? We had for four years executive orders that uh, rolled back many of the um, regulations that were in place in the Obama years, and now we're rolling back the rollbacks. But we can't continue in this seesaw. Um, and so, uh, so some things will have to go into legislation. But more importantly... More importantly, the next four years are an absolutely critical opportunity for the U.S. public to understand that this is not a partisan issue, that this is actually a broad citizen well-being issue that has to be supported by both parties and taken out of the political seesaw. If we're not able... It has to happen. And it has to happen in these next four years because otherwise we go back to the seesaw and then it's too late. Let's remember that this term of Biden, whether it's his first or, or of two or his only, is already halfway through the decade, the decisive decade. So it has to happen in these next four years, which means that a lot of effort needs to be done on regulation and legislation. But equally important is communication. Communication, communication for people to understand that this is actually in their self-interest. Yeah. They have a special name for that in the United States, Christiana, which is national security. That's what it's called. There you you know, people go. go around, you got all this freedom and I'm, you know, I'm a citizen of the United States and I'm free and I can carry my gun and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, there was a whole experience in World War II about a certain amount of sacrifice, not, not of one's way of life, but to a higher purpose and focus. And that is the national security of the United States. And amazingly, the US spends more than $700 billion every year on its national security. And it can certainly afford to spend a few billions of dollars sorting out the global equity of the climate change response, correct? It's, it's a big difference between that and the five they just announced. But yeah, anyway, you're absolutely right. So just just two more things I wanted to raise on the summit. One is, wasn't it amazing? And again, this harks back to Paris. I mean, if you if you sat there and watched all of the different world leaders, I mean, is there any other issue where you would have 
Netanyahu, followed by King Salman, followed by Modi, followed by Bolsonaro, and then Merkel. And then, I mean, just everyone across the political spectrum, broadly united with the necessity to act, varying degrees of commitment. But again, just a strong signal that this is the issue of our time. This yep. is the strong political statement of togetherness. That was amazing. amazing. And then the other thing that I think we have to call out is is our, our good friend Shia Bastida, who was oh. Uh, oh, invited to speak. Oh, she was so brilliant. She was so brilliant. <laughs> Shia, if you are listening to this, kudos, kudos, kudos. A huge shout out. Oh, she was brilliant. She was brilliant. And it's, you know, the, the thing about those hard-hitting messages that are uncompromising can sometimes be exclusionary. You know, they can sort of blame others in certain ways. But she managed to construct this message that was hard-hitting, that was uncompromising, but was inclusive and that everybody felt they were yes. part of. And I love yes. the bit where she said, Beautifully done. at the end of the day, we are striking because we are striving for joy. Just totally framed in the positive. It was beautiful. Hmm. Hmm. When you have all those, you know, heads of state coming up and saying this is unbelievably important, what that means is you listening to this podcast and your friends in any office situation, in any company, in any government department, in any investment institution, in any organization at all, can say, no, no, we've got to do this because of climate change. Pretty much the head of every government in the world said this is the most important thing. And therefore, in this meeting, we've got to do the right thing. Yeah, it's such a strong take signal. Take that authority. Authority is taken, not given. They just gave it to you. Take it. Yeah. And to bounce that now into Glasgow, you know, is, yeah. Um, I got one more thing. Yes. I got one more thing uh, on a separate topic, but it's actually from Cambodia. And it, it's a bit of news that recent satellite data suggests that 2021 is not starting out well for Kyosima, which is a region with, the higher, with a higher number of deforestation alerts detected than in years past. But I thought, that's so cool. I mean, we've got eyes in the sky now. And I think it's yes. fascinating that we're really starting to think, you know, kind of like, oh, that's my liver that's getting chopped down in country X, you know. And, and we need to take responsibility for looking after each other's health. We're basically one kind of giant organism. You know, we're, we're like little cells. And when you chop down the, you know, the whatever, uh, you know, it's kind of COVID or something. So we've got to go off and vaccinate that using our satellites. And I think if I try and make this medical metaphor any more complex, it may explode. <laughs> It's very exciting, though. I completely agree. I mean, the degree of oversight that we can now have to make sure that we're mm. not sort of shooting ourselves in the foot to mix your metaphor is uh, is amazing. Um, okay, move on to our interview. Anything else between now and then? Oh, well, yeah, just uh, I've got uh, I've got one uh, review I'd like to read out. Oh, uh, lovely! Very nice from Amy in Melbourne, Australia, uh, via Apple Podcast, uh, who said, "Fantastic podcast! Thanks, Christiana, Tom, and Paul for all the outrage and optimism, and for entertaining, interesting, and educational podcast that is both sobering and enlightening." I live in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm disgusted by our relative lack of progress here but hearing you each week gives me hope thank you very much and please keep going p.s would love to hear your thoughts on animal agriculture and an update on progress related to climate change in this sector good well that's call. a really good steer because i think that you know the food sector is about to undergo a complete revolution we did have the privilege to uh, interview previously uh, chief executive of beyond meat but i hope we can make a whole uh, in-depth multi um show investigations of this because it's huge yes i agree and may I share one more listener reaction? 
Um, these are like the best part of my week, by the way, when you two read out these responses. It absolutely thank makes it, yeah, you, yeah, Amy, it by the way. Thank you for yeah. that lovely response from Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. You're very thank kind. You. Yeah. And, and we have another lovely one from Manila, Philippines. I love this podcast for all of the wonderful information that I've learned and also for how entertaining it is. I wonder if that refers to Paul only or to all of us. I think it's, well, you know, it's entertainment is a sort of, it's art, it's, it's a style, it's a lifestyle thing. <laughs> Do let us know. Do let us anyway, know. Anyway, yeah. she says, keep up the great work. I live in Manila, Philippines and work on environmental issues. So that is Lisa in the Philippines. How wonderful to hear from her. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. This is, it, it really makes such a difference. Thank you so much. Everybody who leaves us a rating, leaves us a review, we absolutely love it. So um, we really, really appreciate it. Mm. Cool. Okay. So this week we have a very exciting and timely interview given what has happened and someone who has just been so involved in this sector for such a long time with such deep experience, particularly of the US, but not only. Fred Krupp has presided over the Environmental Defence Fund for 30 years, championing the power of the marketplace to positively change the environment and has transformed EDF now into one of the world's most influential environmental organisations. Um, he's been a leading voice on climate change, energy, corporate sustainability. He gave a brilliant TED talk talking about methane, which is such a crucial issue. And actually, Christiana, a while ago, you told me a wonderful story about Fred Krupp because you've known him for a very long time. Do you want to share that story with the listeners as an introduction to who the man is? Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. This goes way back to the um, early 90s when I had just moved to Washington, D.C. and founded uh, what started as a tiny, tiny little NGO doing educational and, uh, and, and capacity building work on climate change, mostly in Latin America. It was called CSDA, Center for Sustainable Development in the Americas. And um, at the end of our first year, it was first a, a two-women show. And at the end of, a fir of the first year, I was just so concerned because I wasn't taking a salary, but I also didn't have the budget to pay the salary of my colleague. And I was just feeling absolutely miserable about that, um, despite all of our fundraising. And lo and behold, one day, in because this is the way it used to happen, um, a check arrives, a physical paper check arrives. Uh, I open the envelope, and inside is a check for $10,000 from Fred Krupp at EDF. And I was, wow. I was so touched. A, we hadn't fundraised with EDF. Um, and I just thought, wow, that is such a demonstration of, you know, trust and confidence to a tiny little struggling little NGO. And honestly, it could have been a $10 million check because it definitely allowed us to get over the hump that we were facing. So, um, yeah, I've always had a soft spot for, for Fred um, for that reason, but also for his amazing leadership of EDF. That is a wonderful story. That's and, and it's also a story about the power of philanthropy, right? I mean, what else could you have done 30 years ago that would still be remembered as an impact that changed the world so far, so much later? What a satisfying thing to do. Fred Krupp, yeah. amazing well, human I've, being. I've told him it ended up being a pretty good investment because it kept me in climate change for a while. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm going to back that one 100%. Big what, return. Well, what, what was the internal rate of return of that one? <laughs> priceless. Priceless. <laughs> Wonderful. Here is Fred Krupp. We will, as ever, see you afterwards. Fred. 
Fred, what a pleasure to have you on our podcast in what seems like a few minutes or seconds after the Biden Climate Summit. I don't think any of us have actually had time uh, to digest the impact of what uh, came up and was put on the table last week, both on the part of uh, the governments that came together, but also other stakeholders. But would love to know, uh, one week after the summit, where are you? What are your overarching conclusions? What What is the good news for you? And what are concerns for you? Well, thanks, Christiana. It's a delight to be here with you and Tom. And I think the summit was a tremendously uplifting event. Um, I, it's not as though the fight is over, but it did what it needed to do. It signaled that the United States is back in the game. The United States putting forward an ambition of 50 to 52% reductions. Uh, that's an ambitious goal. That's the goal that many companies, as well as uh, environmental groups, were looking to get over the 50% mark, and we did. We were pleased by some of the announcements by uh, countries and companies that accompanied uh, you know, the announcement as well. And the key now is going to be, uh, you know, speaking as a U.S. citizen and knowing the role the U.S. can and has in the past played, but has been absent for the last four years. The key now is the U.S. needs to make good on this pledge. And that's going to require a lot of hard work by almost everyone in the United States to make it happen. Fred, how much of that can actually be executive regulation through all of the different agencies, departments, and how much of that do you think is going to have to be negotiated uh, with the Republicans because it needs legislative backing? Well, I think there's a couple of parts to that question, Christiana. One is um, a lot of it can be done through the executive branch. But even there, the more support it has from Republicans and the more support it has from the interests being regulated, the companies, the more durable those regulations are likely to be. But uh, on the regulatory front, um, they can do cars, uh, the administration, if it wants, and it has not yet said whether it wants to or not, can do trucks and buses. They can do power plants uh, and they can do oil and gas methane emissions. So that's a lot that can be done. On power plants though, uh, honestly, uh, the more durable way to get it done would be in Congress. And the president did propose in the campaign a clean electricity standard. It will be hard to get that done in Congress. So we certainly are encouraging him to have the EPA put in tougher standards on power plants. But to get the high ambition, the 80% reduction we need by 2030 from the power sector off of 2005 levels, um, to get that much out of the power sector, we're going to need Congress. And the utility industry is being reasonably constructive. Several of the biggest utilities in our country have now come out and urged the White House to go for an 80% reduction from that sector by 2030. But we're not there yet. We don't have enough utilities. We don't have enough environmental groups. We certainly don't have enough Republican senators and congressmen agreeing to do this yet. But we're, we're trying to lift this rock. And since the price of democracy is that every four years there could be a change in the White House, um, everything that is regulation, and you gave us a pretty long list there, 
doesn't that stand the uh, the the threat? Uh, let's call it the threat of democracy, <laughs> of, <laughs> of, of of voting uh, a different a different kind of leadership in within four years. Well, it it does, um, but the great thing here is that President Biden and John Kerry and Gina McCarthy and Michael Regan. Uh, Jennifer Granholm, the whole administration is making the case to the American public that this is going to be good for people now, as well as for the atmosphere over the long run. It's going to create uh, jobs now. It's going to create health benefits now. And the fact that um, some companies, including GM, have said that they're going to transition to all electric vehicles by 2035 and other manufacturers have made um, some similar statements. Um, the fact that the administration is making the case this will help us in the short and long run and some companies are climbing on board makes these regulations more likely to be durable. There are no guarantees. Well, mm-hmm. honestly, depoliticizing this whole topic would be um, perhaps the most important contribution of uh, of this administration, if they can do it, to depoliticize it and take it out of the partisan politics arena. Agree with you completely. How how do you think it's going in terms of, because I mean, if you look back at, I suppose, the last time there was a really serious attempt to do something from a legislative perspective soon after President Obama came in. And he tried to sort of persuade the American people, that this was a recovery from the financial crisis strategy. And they never really bought it, right? It was sort of seen as a kind of pet project that was being foisted on them at a moment of vulnerability is how I now look at that history. And I've heard some commentators talk about that. And I suppose reading between the lines of what you said, if Biden can persuade the American people that doing something now on climate is a recovery from COVID strategy and it's sort of helping them get back on their feet, then it will be enduring... I'm just wondering, you know, looking at the U.S. from the rest of the world, we're kind of waiting for the penny to drop in terms of the other half of the U.S. understanding these wider climate issues. Are we making progress or does the nature of partisan politics just mean that divide is is still there? It's just sort of invisible to us right now because of who's in the White House. Well, um, it's a completely different situation, Tom, than 10 years ago. Here's why. Uh, One people have connected the dots. In the last 10 years, we've seen tremendous hurricanes. We've seen big storms. We've seen enormous rainfall events. Lord knows we've seen wildfires in the West Hmm. as well as Australia. And so people now are much more aware that climate change is not some projection that will happen way off. Their lives are being affected now too. People are aware that the price of solar power has come down 90% since 10 years ago. Wind power, 75%. Battery storage, which was supposedly not going to come down in price, is down 85% in the last 10 years. So, And and people are seeing that the fastest growing sector um, for job growth um, is in clean energy uh, mm-hmm. jobs. People are seeing that electric cars are actually better uh, vehicles to require um, less money to fuel them. They're uh, less more maintenance. fun to drive, less maintenance. You got it. You know, I'm not going to say that we're in a, n- a new era in the sense that the issue is completely bipartisan, but it's the polling data also, including polls that just came out last week, 
show there's far more support um, among all sections of American society. So I, I think there are, um, there's actual reasons to be mm. much more hopeful mm. now than there were 10 years ago. Well, may, may this be the four years in which we actually get there. That would be uh, really such, such an important contribution to the U.S. economy, to U.S. political uh, continuity, and, but also to, to the planet. Um, and speaking of the planet, Fred, if I could take you on a little uh, cognitive trip right now, a cognitive journey to the Arctic, You've been working for a while on the relationship between methane um, emissions, which are short-lived, and the disappearance that we're already seeing of summer um, ice in the Arctic. Um, and I believe you are concluding that there's a direct relationship between those two. As far as I had heard until uh, I'm reading some of the some of the results from your work, that albedo effect that the summer ice sheet has been protecting us with was not necessarily directed to one particular greenhouse gas. Are you making a direct relationship to methane? Yes, and here's why, uh, Christiana. Um, it turns out that we have to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, as uh, you and Tom both know so well. We have to do that as quickly as we possibly can. We also have to reduce methane, and the urgency of reducing methane is so important because the effect of methane is so immediate. Mm -hmm. So while carbon dioxide will have that effect over 100 years, methane has this big bang right in the very beginning. And so looking at, is there a way we can keep that summer sea ice in the Arctic? Uh, what the scientists have concluded, Alyssa Akko on our staff, collaborating with many others, um, is there is no way, no matter what we do on carbon dioxide, we can save that summer sea ice unless we uh, bring down methane emissions dramatically here over the next uh, decade or so. Hmm. The good news is, according to Fatih Barol at the International Energy Agency and others, we can bring down those emissions from the oil and gas industry by 75% by 2030, and we damn well should. Damn and well. we can also attack methane sources from feedlots, from landfills, and from coal mines. Um, so this is a tractable problem. We can save the Arctic sea ice, but only if we get after methane with much more urgency now that we know this than, than um, the world has had in the past. Hmm. Could you explain that al why that albedo effect is so important? Why, what, to someone who hasn't heard this, you know, why is the summer sea ice in the Arctic so critical? And, and what is its relationship to the ice down south in the Antarctic? Well, the ice in the Antarctic is critical because it sits on top of land. So when it melts, sea level rises. The ice near the North Pole, the sea ice, sits on the water. So like the ice in a glass of water, uh, when it melts, the level of the water doesn't go up. But Nevertheless, it's... But... But... <laughs> but... Um, because it acts like a mirror it's reflecting the sunlight back into space. And that reflected light isn't 
um, heating the atmosphere up as much as it would be if it were just uh, coming into the ocean and being absorbed by the ocean. And so by saving the summer sea ice, we are preventing an escalation in uh, the greenhouse gas effect that will otherwise occur. Hmm. Uh, also, there's ecologically significance for doing it. Also, by keeping temperatures down, we're less likely to be passing other tipping points, melting the tundra uh, in, uh, in the Arctic, which could release methane. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, according to the best informed scientists. But we don't want to get anywhere near those tipping points. The more we can keep temperatures down in the short run, the better. And it turns out that methane mitigation is the most cost-effective way to mm. do that. At the same time, we can't keep our eye off the ball. We've got to be driving CO2 down, pedal to the metal as fast as we can. Mm. Fred, um, most of those methane emissions from industrial sources, right? Tundra is a different thing. But from industrial sources, basically come from fossil fuel infrastructure, right? Um, and those, those fugitive emissions. My sense is that the oil and gas industry, at least some of, the, uh, some of them, have realized that it's actually in their interest to control those um, fugitive emissions of methane. Do, do you think we're making progress there because they're motivated by their own, um, by their own interest, their own bottom line? Well, many of the oil and gas majors, I think 13 of them, have pledged to dramatically cut methane emissions. So we are making progress. However, uh, those majors only represent 30% of total production around the planet mm -hmm. of oil and gas. So we need to get all the producers to be driving their methane emissions to, as Tom says, virtually zero. Uh, that's where methane sat. The satellite we're going to launch next year comes in. It will be able to look at all major oil and gas infrastructure around the world. And we've promised to make that data available in real time uh, for free to the public. Fantastic. So um, it, it will provide accountability that's just been missing because this stuff yes. is invisible. invisible. The, the other big sources of methane, um, of course, are agriculture, including dairy cows, beef cows, uh, rice production, uh, various other things. And coal mines also um, put out methane. Landfills do too. So these are all the sources we have to get after. Great. I just want to ask you quickly as well about something that came out last week that we thought actually was one of the most exciting things to come out of the summit. So I know you're involved, fascinated to know your views, and that is the the LEAF Coalition, Lowering Emissions by Accelerating Forest Finance, which, for listeners who don't know, it's a global initiative involving partnering private companies such as Amazon, Airbnb, GlaxoSmithKline with governments like the US, the UK and Norway to mobilize a billion dollars to protect tropical forests. Now, this is the largest public-private investment of its kind. Um, of course, deforestation is now the second largest source of greenhouse gas emissions and nature-based solutions have not been funded to the degree that they need to be. So we're feeling very optimistic that this could be a sort of point of departure where we start really finding solutions and investing and doubling down on them. Maybe you could just take us through that a bit. How are you feeling about the LEAF Coalition? How will it address these issues? And do you feel um, that this is a, a moment where we could see some of those challenging issues begin to improve? Well, this is a huge breakthrough, Tom. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, it it will mobilize a billion dollars. Um, 
this year for large-scale forest protection and sustainable development. It's called LEAF for Lowering Emissions by Accelerating Forest Finance. It's, it will be the single largest private sector investment to protect tropical forests. More than half the money will come from uh, a group of companies led by Amazon, but also Airbnb, Bayer, Boston Consulting Group, uh, Glaxo, SmithKline, McKinsey and Company, Nestle, Salesforce, Unilever. You know, thanks go to the United States government, the United Kingdom, and Norway for uh, providing uh, some backstop guarantees on this. What's critical here, Tom, is the idea has been developed in collaboration with indigenous communities, forest mm -hmm. peoples, wow. Brazilian NGOs, and it's a game changer because, as you both know, people have been talking about um, various ways to get funding into avoiding deforestation, but it just hasn't materialized until now. Mm -hmm. and, and now it's being done at a jurisdictional level. It will prevent cutting one place uh, while another place is being saved. And there's several countries around the world that are poised to benefit from this and, and will be able to lower their deforestation. And I couldn't be happier with this announcement. Well, it's could you oh, just sorry. just one fun? Go ahead, go ahead, Tom. Oh, sorry, I was just going to ask if you could explain what jurisdictional means hmm. because we hear a lot about jurisdictional fi forest finance. Um, in the past, uh, the way some people put together projects was to save uh, the trees on one plot of land. But unfortunately, if you save trees on that plot of land, and somebody else wanted to produce soybeans or graze cattle they could burn the next plot over. And so you weren't really getting a gain there. You were still destroying forest. Jurisdictional red stands for the idea that um, there's gotta be at least two and a half million hectares in scale before there'll be credit. And so when we're talking about these bigger landscapes, the whole landscape having to perform by showing that it's reducing deforestation, um, then we're able to know that the money being invested is getting real reductions because it's happening at either the state level or at the subnational, if not a nation state, at a subnational state level. Fantastic. The, the other thing that is interesting about this is that it's performance-based, right? So it's not that the, the full amount of the financial resources is put up front, which makes many people very nervous because then they never know where those resources go, but rather that there is a, a very strict on-the-ground monitoring and it is based on, uh, on proof proof points that the forest has been protected. So that's performance-based finance. Exactly. Um, so that's actually a very, a very important characteristic of it. But it, it leads me to wonder, Fred, whether, um, whether this is it on the financial model for avoiding deforestation, or in fact, even for, uh, for reforestation or regeneration of degraded soils. Are we going to have to depend on this kind of financing, which in the end is not investment? It is basically corporate, I want to call it philanthropy because they're not getting any direct monetary 
return for it. And that in and of itself, I think, if this is the only instrument that we have, that in and of itself would put a ceiling on how much funding we can invest into an area that is as critical as this one. So do you see that this is one of several financial instruments that can be contributed into a broader portfolio of financial instruments, or do you see this as being the most effective? Well, first of all, Christiana, you and I share the goal that avoiding deforestation one of the is one of the things we can do right now and make a huge difference. And we haven't yet seen any model that can avoid deforestation at scale. I think this is the first model that's um, you know come along thanks to Emergent and others who have cooperated to create it. And Nat Cohan on EDF staff, Steve Schwartzman, others get a lot of credit. Um, so does Francis Seymour at WRI, the Arc Tree Standards. A lot of people have been involved. This is the first model, this Leaf Coalition, that has the possibility of moving billions of dollars into this. And so, no, it doesn't have to be exclusive or the only model. I, I'd love to see others emerge. But um, for now, this is a real breakthrough that um, for the first time since I've worked on the avoided deforest issue, which spans 25 years, um, this is much bigger than anything that's come before. And what is your wow. sense of what is the motivation of the companies, the countries I understand, but what is the motivation, the incentive of the companies to put this money into this? Well, you know, more and more consumers um, care that the companies they're purchasing from and doing business from are good citizens. They certainly want companies to re be reducing their own footprint. And these companies all are doing that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have um, we wouldn't have had them part of the coalition. But in addition to doing what they can in their own house and in their own supply chain, uh, these companies are also saying, we want to do more. And um, I think their employees um, appreciate having an employer that wants to do more. And the customers, yep. when they hear about this, will also be very positive. So I think there's enormous reputational benefits for these companies. I would add a third constituency there, definitely employees. Uh, customers and future employees, right? The young yeah. people have so much higher expectations of companies these days. I mean, basically, companies are being classified into, are you contributing to the problem or are you contributing to the solution? Because you can no longer say, you know, Humpty Dumpty on the wall. It's either show me that you are literally very effectively on the ground contributing to the solution or else anything else other than that, you're contributing to the problem. And I think that lack of, I don't know, tolerance for the wishy-washiness of companies, um, especially among young people, is really making these companies realize if they want to be able to attract brains, if they want clients, uh, you know, in the, in the mid and long term, um, and if they want business continuity, they have to begin to do these kinds of things. So it's actually quite um, quite exciting to see that they are realizing this and stepping up. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, it's important for the expectations that young folks have and the future employees. And by the way, those expectations also apply to uh, 
uh, you and me, uh, government leaders, NGO leaders, now is the time to be bold. Uh, we're out of time. All of us have to be looking to do things at scale in big ways. And if we're not willing to do that, we should get out of the way. Um, fortunately, I know you two are, and I certainly know, you know, EDF is as well, the Environmental Defense Fund. We're working on the biggest at scale solutions we can find. Love it. Tom, do you want to close us out? Oh, sure, I can do that. So, Fred, this has been such a, a, a pleasure and so wonderful to talk to you. We have one question that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast, and we'd love to also, of course, ask it of you. We call the podcast Outrage and Optimism, and that's because, as you've said, we're at this most critical moment, and we need both our optimism that we can make the change, and we need to bring our outrage because we're not where we need to be. So we'd love to hear you tell us, are you outraged or are you optimistic or where do you fall on the scale between the two? <laughs> you know, um, you can't do this sort of work that I do uh, without having hope. Um, I like to say that, you know, optimism is kind of a prediction. It's all going to be okay. Hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. <laughs> we need to be hopeful, but we need to be working on it because everything is yeah. not fated to be okay. We're still at uh, a tipping point where things could go either way. And thanks to the great uh, work that you two have done, the book that you co-wrote, I am hopeful. Um, and I think with a lot of work, we can all afford to be afford to be optimistic <laughs> fantastic nice. fred krupp thank you so much for joining thank us thank you fred such a delight to thank see you. you again thank you so Good much to talk to you take care So how great to sit down with Fred Krupp. He's been in this space for such a long time, such an amazing leader, um, such wonderful insights in terms of what's happening right now and what can happen next. What do you guys leave that conversation with? Well, I was super sorry not to be in it, actually, but having listened to it, it's fantastic. But Christiana, what are your reflections? Well, um, I, I love your term, um, Paul, of eyes in the sky because, um, well, we heard how important methane emissions are. Mm. And I had honestly not put those two things together, that methane being a short-lived gas has a huge impact on right now on the cryosphere, especially on the Arctic um, summer ice sheet. I hadn't put those two things together. And um, he has been working for such a long time on eyes in the sky, uh, methane sat satellite, for measuring emissions from all the oil and gas industry worldwide. And he, you know, he has been focused on this methane thing for years. Yeah. And God bless him, right? Because all the, the rest of us um, usually go into CO2 or we use it as our proxy currency for all of the other greenhouse gases. But he has been razor focused on short-lived gases and, and actually reminding us, this is actually something that we can do. It is entirely possible to dramatically reduce our methane fugitive emissions. And we have to do it. And in fact, it is even in the interest of the oil and gas industry because those emissions that they have that are fugitive are lowering their efficiency of their fossil fuels. 
So it is a very, very doable thing. And with satellite that follows and monitors where those fugitive emissions are, we will be able to track it much better and then to put pressure on uh, those responsible for decreasing that. And so, I mean, so consequential, right? I mean, there was a report that came out, you know, that Fred was obviously part of, and it hasn't come out yet, but it was reported in the New York Times. It's perfectly feasible to reduce methane emissions by 45% inside this decade. That would prevent 0.3 degrees of warming, nearly half a degree just on its own by 2050. That is insane that that is not top of the to-do pile. Because actually, as you say, it's easy. It leads to cost reductions, um, makes people money. So we absolutely have to get on that. I totally agree. And I think one of the other things I took just from the conversation is it's just how practical Fred is. You know, he's not come at this with any yes. kind of ideology of I've got a view of how the world should be and I'm going to follow that ideology. He has just looked for how he can have an impact. And I think that's a big part of the success of EDF. I think he's very, very in- impressive and inspiring person. I just wanted to try and add a little bit more of Fred for listeners. Um, I was doing some reading about some of his comments and, uh, you know, he, 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 I couldn't agree with him more when he says business, the business world needs to unleash the most powerful tool they have to fight climate change, their political influence. Mm. That's a good systems thinker. And what about this comment from the 13th of January, 2021? The Environmental Defense Fund is fully committed to free and fair elections, to the peaceful transfer of power and to the core institutions that have made the US a great nation that it is. Last week, these key principles were violated by President Trump, et cetera, et cetera. But I just kind of think it's, it's you know, it's it like- Stepping out. You, yeah. you don't put somebody in a box and say, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of environmentalist because you know the environment is everything. So if you're an environmentalist, you're an everythingist. But I think he actually is a great example of an everythingist. I like it. What Buckminster Fuller called a comprehensivist. Very cool. <laughs> well, I, I, let me underline that because um, w- one characteristic that EDF has always had under Fred's leadership is that the, they haven't, um, from an ideology point of view, stuck corporations into the um, the evil box, the, the devil's corner. They've actually really, really made a very impressive effort to reach out to corporations and bring them along, bring them along, pull them into the um, transformation that they should each be contributing to without greenwashing, without, you know, just papering over what those corporations are doing, truly keeping their feet to the fire but with a very constructive attitude of we are not going to solve this unless corporations do their bit. And today that is not um, a unique position because most people have understood that that is the case, but it was definitely unique 20 years ago. In fact, even 10 years ago, it was a leadership, very, very progressive position from EDF. Um, and so, you know, kudos to Fred for that. Kudos to Fred. Mm. Yeah, right. no, I, mean, I was just going to say that the last word on that one is just I think that, that that's exactly what corporations are in business in general. It's contested real estate. You can you can say it's over there and it's nothing to do with us, or you or actually you can you can play there and say no, no, you know, this could go either way, and I'm going to try and dip my oar in on this side. Sorry, Tom. Mm. No, that's great. Thank you. Well, I was going to move on. This has been a great episode and I was going to thank the listener and move on to our music for this well, week. You say you were going to, but are you going to thank the listener? And, and, and now I will. Thank you, listeners. We appreciate you being here. This has been a fun episode. <laughs> um, and now, we wait, have some wait, wait. Before, 
Hold it. Hold it, guys, before we sign off. Hold it. We are actually hitting our two-year anniversary of having been on the air this week. Yeah. And we're coming up on our hundredth episode. <gasps> so how cool is that? How did we forget that? We have to celebrate <laughs> it, that uh, one. Is that next week our, is our birthday, our hundredth birthday, right? Uh, let's, let's make it all next week, hundredth, hundredth birthday and two-year anniversary. Do it all in one. What do you think? All right. Yeah. So, so this week we have a wonderful piece of music for you from Vivi, a uh, Swedish dream pop trio, their amazing new single, One Day. It's this rich and textured pop aesthetic. They have one thing in mind with all of their music, dreaming up a better world through song. This is an amazing track. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Why do you think it's important that artists engage with climate change, inequality or other social issues? It's uh, important because they have bigger, uh, the bigger platform. Uh, if they have a lot of listeners and uh, a lot of fans, I think it's important that everybody does what they what, what they can. I mean, those little small parts that we can do for Mother Earth. That's uh, that's how we can make the big change. I mean, I love the David and Goliath kind of thing. I mean, look at what uh, Greta has done and when the Nobody can be a somebody in that situation. That's beautiful. And um, what was your inspiration for this song? Uh, simplicity. Just trying to make a simple song with a few chords in it and a pretty melody. Uh, but it's also about daring to change, which is like the hardest thing. But sometimes you just have to leave everything if you want to run towards something new. Sometimes you have to do that, and I believe also that us as humans we i mean we really need to change right the way we're living right now is not good for um for the planet we're living on uh, so we need to dare running towards new solutions and that's really hard at least for me but um i'm trying
So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of the podcast. Thanks for listening. The song you just heard is One Day by Vivi. This uh, performance you just listened to, you can go watch it. Uh, they performed it live and filmed it, which we love. And because we haven't been able to go to concerts, go to house shows. I mean, I know Christiana is a big fan of house shows. Uh, go watch the performance. One thing I liked about it, the keyboard player, she has this cool little Yamaha Porta sound with this vocal patch and just makes that dreamy vocal sound really thick. And anyway, I'm a fan, so go check it out. And huge news. They have a brand new record coming out May 21st. You can pre-save and pre-add the music on your music player of choice. Once the album drops, you get that notification and it's already in your pocket. Amazing. Link in the show notes to all of that. Thank you, Vivi. Okay, and before we get to the credits, I definitely want to thank all of you who have been leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Like Tom said, it's the best part of our week and we just... You are all so great. If you have not left us a rating and review, might we encourage you to do so? We might read it on the podcast for everyone to hear. So get to it, have fun, and thank you. Okay, Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Marina Mancilier-Herman, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, and John Ward. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson, and our producer is Clay Carnell. And our hosts are Cristiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm going very fast today. Thank you so much to our guest this week, Fred Krupp. I've got links in the show notes to his contact, as well as the Environmental Defense Fund's social media. And speaking of social media, listeners, you can follow us on all social media platforms at Global Optimism. Send us a message. Okay, quick show notes this week. That is a wrap. Next week, our 100th episode. But not only that, it's our 100th episode. It's our two-year anniversary of being a podcast. And yes, it's going to be a race to zero episode. So, big question is, how are we going to celebrate all of this all at once? We're going to do it together. Hit subscribe, and we'll see you next week. 